look at that. Feels good to be back. Yes, it does. It's time to connect with Lacey Nelson. I'm producer Brandon from the Rob Anybody and Don Show. Joined with Kyle back there, the Hi. producer's radio. We also got Dino on the cameras. And our guest today is Jenna McKay. Welcome, Jenna. Thank you for having me. Of course. Now, before we get started, Lacey, what's been going on with you? Why, why did it take so long for us to get back? Well, you know, after the much-needed break, everybody needed a break. Uh, it was um, I was having a really good day on March 2nd and doing some training exercises for some uh, police recruits and um, made the great decision to fall from about five feet up and broke both of my wrists. Oh, my gosh. I know. Makes life a little bit difficult. You think? Yeah. The amount of things you you don't realize that you need just one hand for. One, you can't open the fridge. You can't open the front door. I was like, I'm going to order DoorDash for the first time because I can't cook anything. I can't make anything. And the DoorDash got there, and they put it on the porch, and then I go, shit, I can't open the door. I couldn't even open the door. So, you know, the just the things, you know. Mm. Never mind the personal stuff. Right. You know, using the bathroom, trying to get dressed, take a shower. You can't. Do. But things have gotten a little bit easier. Yeah, so yesterday was four weeks. Um, you know, they're still broken. I can't drive still. I got a couple weeks before I can drive, but, um, you know, I can get myself dressed now with minimal pain, so that's good. Awesome. Oh, and, and I don't take pain meds. Is I'm, that by choice, or? I'm adamantly against taking pain meds, so they were going to give me, they're like, what do you want? You know, you're broken. Percocet, Norco? I said, no. Yeah. 800s, that's it. It's been fun. Right on. I've pushed through. Doing a lot of meditating to get get through that pain. I mean, yeah, resiliency. I mean, I have tried so hard to just push through this damn thing. Mm-hmm. But well, speaking of resiliency, I think that's a good opportunity to introduce our our guest today. I agree. Yes, uh, Jenna, wonderful human being, reached out to me on social media a couple months ago. There are good things about social media. <laughs> you know, There's so many bad things, but then there are good things because look where we are, right? Uh, she reached out. Um, her story we had coffee and phenomenal person um and i'll let her tell her own story but she's a a survivor of human trafficking and she's going to go through how that came to be um and some of the cool things that she's doing now uh, as a warrior in this field she spoke uh, to the united nations she's training law enforcement all over the country she's talking to young people well you know i'm in law enforcement and as law enforcement uh, the knowledge that we have is fairly minimal unless you have a specialized gig and you get formalized training for that. Um, but she's out talking to everybody, um, you know, and I'm just honored to meet you, to know you, to have you here on the podcast. So, um, you know, I'll let you take it away. Tell us, you know, from the start, just how we, when we had coffee stuff that you taught me about you. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I can guess I can kind of give a little bit of my backstory and where I'm from and, um, I grew up in Southern California and um, pretty average kid. I had a big sister, two big sisters. Um, they were seven and 11 years older than me. So by the time I was 12, they were both off at college. Um, I had a mom and dad at home. My dad was a farmer. My mom was a teacher. Um, I went to a private school, um, lived in a nice community neighborhood, you know, low crime. Um, and I was a kid that uh, I could kind of see it where my life was headed. I was at 12, started playing volleyball and training with a weight trainer, um, all to follow the footsteps of one of my big sisters who got a scholarship and played in college. And um, I, my 
in my high school years is when I met my trafficker who went to the same school as me. And he also wasn't somebody who you might picture to become a trafficker. He had um, a mom. She had a successful business in the community. His stepdad was a pastor and a chief in the Navy. Um, and he, with false promises, um, he graduated a year before me. My senior year, I was struggling. My parents were separated at the time. And he lured me out of high school with a promise of a great life. Um, I felt very stuck because it was already an abusive relationship. And um, I went with him not knowing that, you know, he, other criminal activity that he was involved in, um, that he would learn um, about trafficking and that would be what would happen to me. So you're 17, 18? So I turned 18 in December okay. and I would be graduating high school in June. So I was technically an adult, but very much a kid. Yeah, still young in and naive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you finished school? No, I I dropped out of oh. high school, threw away the volleyball scholarship, and that all, you know, I wanted to go play college volleyball. Um, and um, when I really didn't hear a lot from my community um, and my coaches and my teachers and um, people that had known me since I was in kindergarten, um. I was confused at the time. Like, why is nobody reaching out to me? Like, and I, it really stirred up a rebellion in me and anger. And I'm like, well, I'll just go. And um, it made me feel more stuck. And it made me um, feel like, oh, well, now this is, I, there's no going back. Now I'm with him and I'm stuck with him. And did he, uh, so he took you obviously out of school. Did you guys leave the state? No, nope, we were right there in the community. Same community. Mm -hmm. So everything was happening under everybody's noses. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's let's open. Let's let everybody know if they have questions. Yes, that's right. Um, we Colin. actually we have gotten an email here already. But if you want to uh, if you want to at all engage and connect with us, you can do so at rad at radradio.com. The phone lines are open as well. Eight 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 nine eight nine ninety eight eleven. We got an email here from Kelly. He says, human trafficking is a huge issue. Here in Utah, it's no different. Local, state, and federal forces routinely sweep massage parlors and hotels, as well as prostitution stings in Salt Lake City, the Utah-Nevada state lines, and southern Utah by both Arizona and Colorado state lines. They're often successful in freeing dozens at a time and reuniting persons with families and programs that help aid them in recovery. As hard as they try, they are not as lucky when it comes to the traffickers themselves, with the exceptions of most massage parlors. The trouble with those is that as soon as one is shut down, three more open. Even here in Provo, police have been able to free a dozen young ladies just last year from a chain of massage parlors whose owners have been cited several times for prostitution crimes. I'm still not sure how they keep getting away with it. What can people do to help, and what are some of the hallmarks of traffickers and their victims? Well, currently, I mean, this is in the state of California. Um, last year, I worked with Senator Grove um, on a bill, SB 1042, and it was to make human trafficking a serious violent felony in California, which now it's considered not a serious felony, and it would make a, a strike in California's three-strike law. And we took it, and it didn't make it past the Public Safety Committee. Hmm. Um, and so she brought it back again. It's SB 14. And um, you can go find on Senator Shannon Grove's website or you can found it on um, Jenna McKay Foundation Facebook page um, a link to sign a petition that you support because um, what it would do is make 
uh, harsher penalties for traffickers. And mm. I don't know. I think I, that we can all agree that traffickers, somebody that is selling a child or an adult over and over again and profiting off of their rapes or labor, um, they should be locked up. <laughs> I think we can probably all agree on that. You know, uh, and Kelly, again, Kelly, thanks for writing in. We, we love Kelly. He's always writing in for us and listening. Um, he makes a good point. He, he points out the word prostitution and human trafficking which I have a personal opinion that they're two very different things. We're talking a human being who is consensual and willing and chooses the lifestyle as opposed to someone who is forced into being held captive, being manipulated, being sold. Two very different perspectives, I think. And wherever you stand on that legally is is here nor there. But we can all agree if you have a young person, really anybody, but especially a young woman, being sold against her will and being held against her will that's yeah it's force fraud and coercion and 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 some people assume that it's a choice to be there but traffickers are very tactical in their manipulation and the way they get their victims to not reach out for help and feel scared and stuck um and and it's never consensual it's rape it's It's rape so he's got you you drop Mm -hmm. out of school now you're kind of in his wheelhouse Mm -hmm. you can't you have no now you have no education you have no scholarship now what um so it wasn't um it gradually happened um uh, he married me which was another way to kind of keep me stuck it, you know it wasn't like this big romantic wedding and this big wonderful like love story um and uh you know there was a couple instances like one he took me to Tijuana Mexico and he had me branded which something that traffickers do where they brand with a tattoo um, to take ownership of their victims. And I'll, I'll stop there and point out, like, if I had been educated on this stuff in high school, that would have been a huge red flag, like, knowing that something bad is about to happen to me because mm-hmm. it was a traumatic experience. Like, there was already things that were red flags, but that was a big one where it's like, get out, you know, call mm-hmm. home or something. And, um, and uh you know, there was never a conversation of, you know, this is what we're going to do or you're going to work at the strip club or walk the street or go to this casino or anything like that. Um, he had advertised me online without me knowing. And um, we were lived in an apartment right there in the same city that I went to school. And um, he sold me out of that apartment. And, you know, it wasn't something that happened every day or every night or every weekend. Um, it happened over the course of a year. And I was working normal jobs. I mean, I was out in the community, and for me, I remember feeling like, wow, I'm like, I feel like a missing person right here in plain sight. Hmm. Like, why is nobody looking for me, and why is nobody doing anything? And it's almost like I communicated with people with my eyes, like, you can tell something's wrong, right? Um, I worked at a boutique, and the owner, she'd always ask me, are you okay? Is something going on? She felt like, and she would see things like he would come to um, pick me up from work, and he would shine his headlights into the store. And she always thought that was weird, and she'd ask, and I'd kind of hide in the back of the store. She told me about this years later. I didn't remember this incident. And um, that was something he did to keep me from telling people. And, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old, it's scary. That's a threat. Mm -hmm. That's just him, hey, I'm here watching you. Mm -hmm. You know, don't say anything. Mm -hmm. Do you remember how how he managed to get you to go get branded? What, What was that process like? Like, how did you not go, well, maybe not? Um, we had gone a couple different trips to Tijuana, and um, right in the lobby of a club, there was a tattoo artist. And I was intoxicated, mm. but I remember 
um, sitting there and being in pain and it was on my back. And my trafficker went to the bathroom and grabbed a um, paper towel and put it in my mouth. And I remember asking the tattoo artist to stop and he kept going. Like it was all very forced. Um, Did you even know it was being tattooed? Yeah, I knew I knew it was his name. Mm. Um, you know, and I and I kind of have a cool story around it. Years later, I'll share with you. Um, I have a son, and he's twelve, and he's pretty awesome. I'm I know I'm biased, um, but when he was about six, um, it's faded. I had it covered up, and it's faded. And if you look closely, you can see the lettering. And he said, uh, "Mom, I had just started doing this work, and and he said, Mom, what are those letters in there?" And I kind of went like, oh, not ready for this conversation, uh, but always been very honest with him to what his brain can understand. And I said, well, before your dad, there was somebody that did bad things to mommy. And that's why that's there. And he went, OK, and went back to playing with his Legos. And I was like, whew, like dodge that bullet. And then he like processed it. And then he looked up at me and he said, so that's why you help the sad girls now? I was like, yeah, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Oh, Smart nice. kid. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, mm -hmm. you know. Um, did that tattoo happen, like, towards the beginning? Yeah, it happened before the trafficking even began. Got it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how long did the trafficking take place, ultimately? Um, uh, over about nine months. Wow. Um, and it was kind of spread out, and there was times where it wouldn't happen, and I would think it would stop. Um, and, you know, he was taking me, I would, we hung out with his family. I was very separated from my family and support system. Um, and even though he didn't, um, take me to other States or other cities, um, uh, the last time I was sold, I was taken to a motel. Um, he did a very good job at separating me from my family and support system to the extent of he got a restraining order against my dad. And that was because my dad was coming to my work and checking on me because um, he could tell something was wrong. He was able to get the restraining order because you guys were married. Um, he had me go to the courthouse. He was there with me, and I have no idea what he had me write. I don't even remember, but wow. somehow it got passed. And then, you know, my dad had to get rid of his guns, and he's a hunter, and, and he couldn't come near his daughter. Wow. That is manipulation at its finest, isn't it? <laughs> this person was a master manipulator. Mm -hmm. Is this person still on... Is, did they ever get um, jailed or caught? No. Um, so I got away from him. Um, yeah, how did you? Yeah. So I called um, his stepdad and his mom, and I called my dad, and I asked to meet at the church, and I basically just said in front of him and them that I wanted a divorce, and all I said was that he was growing marijuana out of the apartment and selling it. I didn't talk about any of the other stuff he was doing. It was so scary. And they all were like, oh, we get, you know, why you want a divorce. And I was like, gosh, if you only knew. And I promised him, I was like, I don't, I won't tell anybody. I just want to go start my new life. Um, and I thought I could. I uh, took some classes at a local junior college. I got some different jobs, um, but was totally didn't just because I was away from him I mean the tr complex trauma that was undiagnosed you're right so I went to an urgent care seeking help and I was 100 pounds I had my branding my hair was falling out um, I had various stages of bruising um, acting erratic and not one doctor or nurse said hey Jenna what happened to you and that's really all I needed was somebody to sit there and say there's resources and help for you and you can talk about it and we'll get you help where that 
justice could have been served. Um, but it felt like everybody was talking around me and nobody was talking to me. And I felt the assumption of judgment. And so I left thinking, I'll never tell anybody. And I really thought I'd go the rest of my life. Um, I moved on. I married. We, um, he was a Marine. We got stationed in Virginia. Um, I had my son. I thought I was happy and good and could put it all behind me. I started a new life. But that complex trauma was still there. And six years after being trafficked, I broke down and went to a hospital and asked for help. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Were you well received? Um, so I went to, the, I remember that night, I went to an emergency room and I said, look, I don't feel suicidal. I don't feel depressed. I just had some bad things happen to me, thinking they'd give me some kind of therapist or psychiatrist. And they described this place and it sounded like the movie Girl Interrupted. <laughs> and I was like, the loony bed? I'm not going there. <laughs> like, I will suffer in silence. And, um, there along my journey, there's been a few really, I got lucky with really great professionals and as scary as it was, I signed the papers and I agreed to go to the psychiatric hospital. And when I got there, I did, I was like, you know, there was women screaming and crying. There's padded rooms. There was a men's ward. And I was like, do whatever you have to do to get the hell out of here. Mm-hmm. And I did. I was a good little girl. I went to my classes. I wrote in my notebook, the psychiatrist, um, you know, he had a big nose and gray hair that was parted on the side, tassels on his shoes. And I remember all these details about him. I can still picture him in my mind. And the reason I do is because I remember looking at him and studying him, thinking, are you the person that's going to help me? You know, like, are you all this stuff and all this flashbacks and nightmares that I have that I keep to myself? Are you going to make a difference? Um, He sent me home. I had an overdose on the medication that he sent me home on, went back to the inpatient care and it was through art therapy that I came out. And then it was there that I learned that what I survived was human trafficking and that what I had was complex PTSD. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Overdosed on purpose or accidental? I had a nightmare. My my PTSD for a long time was nightmares and very real and vivid. Like I was back in that apartment and in a haze, I kind of walked downstairs. And I remember I, I overdosed. I took all of one bottle of pills and then I poured all of the other one in my hand. And then I poured half thinking, I don't want to die. And then I walked around our entire two-story house and I opened every blind and every curtain. And I didn't know what I was doing in that moment. But reflecting now, it was like me saying to the world, somebody please see me and somebody help me. Mm-hmm. That's insane. <clears throat> Back to your question, though. What happened to this freaking guy? Yeah. So when I was, I forgot, sorry, uh, I got a little carried away. Um, when I was pregnant with my son, I got a text from somebody that I went to high school with. And the text was, did you hear about him? And right away I knew who they were talking about. And right, my stomach sank. And I found out that um, he died. And um, it's interesting because over the years sharing that, people kind of assume how they would feel if they were in the situation like oh justice served he's dead good um you never have to worry about him all these things and for me being the victim of him i felt pissed mm-hmm. um i felt like nobody will ever know that i'm now stuck with this secret forever um i pictured his funeral and everybody saying wonderful things about him and that he really got away with it hmm. but he didn't because here you are no, I think if he was, I would, yeah. <laughs> Talk about not getting away with anything, mm-hmm. you know. We don't even need to say his name. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that you're here and telling the world, you know, that's the justice. Yeah. 
have you been able to reconnect with your family and loved ones and how have they reacted to your experience? Yeah, so um, my dad flew out when I was in the hospital and um, I part of my healing journey was to tell them what happened. And I remember writing some things down because it was so scary to talk about and I had to read it. And I remember peeking up at him and his eyes were shaking and you could just see the anger boil up in him. And uh, it just goes to show it doesn't just affect the victim, it affects the whole family when they hear in and, um, uh, you know, I, I, I always tell people, you know, it's not like the movie Taken. Trafficking often doesn't look that way where you're not dragged out from under the bed and sold on a boat for a million data. A million dollars and you you know you have a dad with a special set of skills and when I said that one time and my dad goes yeah but I would have you know like, <laughs> like okay dad I know he will find you <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he will kill you and um yeah and um and then you know I mean I'm close to my sisters and my mom and and, Good. and um uh they've helped me in supporting my work and they helped me with my son and that's good. Did your dad get his guns back so we can He hunt? got them done. And he, yeah, he's good. good yep. So we got another email uh, from a different Kelly. Um, if you want to write in or if you want to call, email us, rad at radradio.com or call us at 888-989-9011. Uh, when you met your husband, you mentioned your, your son and your his, his daddy. Um, when you met your husband, was it hard to trust him? And how did he re- reassure you? Um, you know, it was... It was hard to trust people in general just because, you know, you go through that kind of trauma. Really, it's not just about my trafficker. It's about the men that bought and raped me. They just are everyday guys in the community. And um, so these weren't like slummy, bum looking dudes. They're just regular dudes. Regular guys that you would see at the grocery store that could have any profession, that could have families. And they had to have known. And I mean, it was forceful rape. It was horrific. And and the most of the trauma um, was a lot of it was, I mean, it was a result of my trafficker, but from them. Like, mm-hmm. I, I still have back pain from the last time I was sold that it was a beating. Um, and so, what, but I, when I went, him, uh, military, complete opposite of my trafficker, um, you know, and, and we, I wasn't ready. I hadn't gotten any help for my trauma. I wasn't ready to be married and be a military wife and all of that. But, um, it, uh, you know, it really helped me move forward with my life in a big way. And I don't know, you know, being stationed at Quantico Marine Base in Virginia, like um, making friends with military wives um, and having different cultures around me and finding my own identity um, was super helpful. Uh, And I don't know that if I, I would have reached out for help if I wasn't on the other side of the country, Mm. if if it was in my community. So, you were saying that when you were bought and sold, you, you experienced a beating. I'm sorry you had to go through that, and it's horrible. But did you ever fight back with any of these guys? Like, if they ever got physical with you, was there any time where you were able to fight back? Um, you know, I for the most part, I tried. And um, being, you know, 100 pounds and a young girl, um, it was more mentally fighting back. So I had a weight trainer you know, all through my junior high and high school years. And he would have me do things like um, visualize playing the perfect volleyball game and the mental toughness and all that kind of side of it. And I remember he'd have me hang from a bar and it would hurt so bad. My arms were killing me and he'd have me focus on something. And I used a lot of that to survive my trafficking like that. The sports psychology stuff helped me survive 
not fighting back didn't mean I wanted it any less or, you know what I mean? It, right. it was just, you're in total survival mode. Everything I did for that year was total survival mode. Mm. What advice uh, would you give to someone who suspects they're being trafficked or know someone who is? Um, the human trafficking hotline that's ran by uh, Polaris Project, a lot of great information information on polarisproject.org. Um, you can call that number anonymously, and if you suspect it, um, you can report it, and resources will be sent to where, wherever you think that is. And um, if you are in contact with somebody, the best thing you can do is um, educate them. Like, hey, if you're being forced to do things against your will, if you feel stuck, there are resources. A lot of them don't know. And a lot of them don't identify as human trafficking victims. Hmm. They um, don't even know what that is, probably. They don't even know. Yeah. I remember being at a task force meeting at the hospital up in Grass Valley, and they wanted to put posters around the hospital. And they say, if you're a victim of human trafficking, call this number. And I was like, no victim is going to see that and, and respond to it. You need to put things that they relate to, mm -hmm. right? Um, so um, letting them know that there is help, um, educating them on that, and... Um, offering that support when they're ready. Do you like that term human trafficking or should it be called something else? Um, I don't, I, I definitely don't like when people, you know, call it prostitution. I was right. never a prostitute. I was a victim of, I, I, I recognizing that they're a victim of a horrific crime and that crime is, you know, in 2000, they passed the human trafficking um, act, just defining what it is, forced fraud and coercion, obtaining somebody, harboring somebody, transporting somebody through forced fraud and coercion for sex or labor. And um, you should honor the victim that, that they are a victim of a crime. Um, and then, you know, survivor, they're a survivor. They're no longer being victimized. So we got an email here from uh, Barbie at rad at radradio.com. I think a lot of people are wondering this. I don't know if you, know, you don't necessarily need to answer it, but it's more out of curiosity. How did your trafficker die? And she says, I hope it was a painful death. Um, from what I understand, I don't know if I have the full story, but um, from what I understand, he moved back to his hometown in Washington um, and got on hard drugs. And then he found out that he had a heart problem and the two together, his medication and the drugs made his heart stop. Doesn't sound pleasant to me. No. I don't know if that brings you any comfort. Yeah, you know, I just, I feel like I felt the feelings and I processed a lot in therapy where I think my biggest revenge, every time I, you know, when I've worked with victims or when I sign a big deal and do a big speech or um, go train and there's a ripple effect where they're identifying victims and responding with trauma-informed care, that's, it feels like I'll get in my car after and I just need to drive and listen to music and I'm like, yeah, you know, like, hell yeah, and that's what you get. Like, um, you know. You that's know. the comfort. Mm -hmm. Good. Hello. Oh. Do you know that voice? <laughs> My goodness. So there's uh, one of the things that, that I noticed with the whole um, trafficking thing and putting out flyers and everything, the good thing is at least we now we have social media. So now, uh, you know, if you're not able to put up flyers online, anything like that, you can put up some type of hotline know uh different posts and different people may have it in there just get reposted so that's also a good thing is just having that uh social media presence whether it's on instagram twitter facebook snapchat or whatever just just having it out there really does justice mm -hmm. you agree with that 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, as long as people are spreading information that's true. Sometimes there's sensationalism, like, oh, look out for the zip ties on your car. And that's not how traffickers operate. They're going to, it's not going to be less, it's less than 5% that are kidnapped for the purpose of trafficking. It's not going to be the weirdo in the store looking at your daughter and he's going to take her in the parking lot. They're going to build a relationship and earn the trust and then slowly push boundaries and then exploit them. Interesting. We got this email from Steve at rad at radradio.com. Thank you for putting your story out there and for being strong enough to help so many others. When you talk to law enforcement or even students, what what kinds of things are you teaching them? What is the number one message you'd like to uh, like people to take away? Um, one of the biggest things is is all the ways that trafficking happens. People picture it that one way that they heard in that movie that one time where there's over 25 ways that somebody can be trafficked. Um, and that's labor and sex trafficking and even going into organ trafficking and all of that. Um, and so with the training, it's kind of dispelling the myths, you know, uh, only women and girls are trafficked. No, boys and men are trafficked. Um, uh, trafficking could never occur in my community. No, it does. Uh, it's not just big cities or in other parts of the world. It's just um, depending on the culture and the vulnerabilities in the community, that's how traffickers will prey, the vulnerabilities. So whatever that is for the individual or the community. Um, so the way it's happening in you know Sacramento might look different than New York might versus the Philippines, right? Um, uh, and then, um, you know, prevention side like training school districts so teachers and um, admin and I I really think that you know when I've done school district trainings I say everybody on that campus that's an adult needs to be trained from the janitor to the coaches to the to identify victims of maybe who are already being trafficked that are coming to school um, but also those that are high risk and um, to build a relationship and connect them and possibly prevent it from happening, which could have happened for me easily had my school and my, my community been trained. So you did mention that um, the whole zip ties and things don't really work or they're false. Is there anything that people should like look out for as far as anything that somebody may be human trafficking, like eyesight, shaking, bruises? Should they be looking out for anything? Um, yeah, you know, one of the biggest things is for kids and general is social media that's how traffickers are gonna um, try to reach kids so if kids are educated you know we teach kids to stop drop and roll uh, look both ways before we cross the street what to do in an earthquake all these things to keep them safe Um, and that's all important but how many kids are experiencing a fire at school versus how many kids are being groomed online Mm -hmm. and how many kids are being sexually abused and are more high risk so if they're getting a phone and they're starting to talk to a stranger um, and they're educated on it of the grooming tactics uh, oh this person isn't just being nice to me there's other things this is odd and i need to talk to my mom and dad or somebody that i can talk to um they're trying they have other goals for me um you know and uh seeing things um sometimes it's similar to a domestic violence you know if a girl goes into a doctor's visit and her trafficker is going to be there answering all the questions or she has everything rehearsed um, that he's told her to say. Um, uh, sounds scripted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. He never leaves her side, and she sounds scripted. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. So what what changes do you hope to see in society and government policies to prevent human trafficking and, uh, and support survivors? Um, I always think that the two biggest things is education and beds. Um, so training the first responders, hospital staff, 
law enforcement, those that will probably come in first contact. Um, but once they're trained and they're identifying more victims, then we need a place to put them. And that's often a problem. And I really, you know, there's a safe house in Monterey that's amazing. And it's separate from, they have a domestic violence shelter and they have a human trafficking safe house. And I really agree with that, that it's similar crimes, but two different things and two different healing journeys. And it's a whole year long program where the first six months is all different kinds of therapy. And the second six months is getting them back into society. How do you get a bank account? How do you go back to school? How do you um, support your kid and, and, and building a life for themselves, which, you know, if you're trafficked since you're 11 years old, which is one of the girls that I took there, now you're getting out of adulthood. You don't know how to do basic life skills. You need that support for, for a good amount of time. You can barely take care of your mental health, let alone open a bank account, right. get a driver's license. That's crazy. So I have an eight-year-old girl at home, my girlfriend's daughter, and um, I'm sure a lot of parents are, are curious about this as well. Um, is there any plan to bring this information to teenagers or even high schools? Um, yeah, so, and, and I'm happy to, um, I actually am going to speak at Marysville High School um, in my community to go into their sex ed class, and all six classes um, will get, you know, kind of a 101 stuff that I wish I had this information. Um, and I also like to um, share my story and make it real with them. You know, if there's a training for the staff and then the kids hear from somebody that survived it in that high school age, it makes it real. They they ha probably have an idea, oh, that could never happen to me when really anybody can become a victim. So you can, it's probably appropriate, what age, what age and up? I think at a young age, I mean, my son knew about trafficking at fourth grade. And he knew that, um, you know, he put together, I remember one time I was driving him to school and he said, what are you going to go talk to uh, the cops about today? And I said, human trafficking. And he said, what's that again? And I said, you know, where people buy people and sell people for sex or labor and they profit off it. Just very basic terms. And he goes, oh, and he was looking out the window and and he goes, so slavery still happens? And I'm like, yeah, it's a modern day form of slavery. Kids understand. Yeah. Like they do. You know, we can talk to them about it. Sometimes can be uncomfortable, but these are you're helping them by talking to them about it. Well, and if you think about it too, if he's got a little girl at school that's going through something, even if it's not human trafficking, but maybe she's being molested by an uncle or something crazy, he's gonna probably be the first kid that's like, "Hey, are you okay?" Right. Because my mom told me about this, mm -hmm. and maybe that opens the door. Mm -hmm. for and he other... also knows you you don't buy girls. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's never an option. Right. You don't buy any human being. They're not for sale. So have you like uh, thought about maybe uh, having a conversation with your son about your past at some point or did have, have you told your husband about? Um, well, yeah, I, uh, I'm no longer, we're no longer married, but he found out with my dad at the psychiatric hospital mm. and, um, that was really rough for him. And, um, uh, I've had conversations, you know, it's funny cause I didn't talk in depth. I've told Christian that, uh, you know, mom has been through some hard stuff and he knows the work I do that's all around human trafficking. Um, but I remember him showing me one day some, he loves sports and he was watching an interview with some sports player and he said, isn't it silly? The questions that he was asked. And I was like, yeah, I've been asked some silly questions in interviews and, and he goes, oh, about when you were trafficked. And I went, you know, <laughs> I don't, do you want to talk about it? And he goes, oh, I know, like, you know, and I'm like, you know, as he grows up, we'll have more conversations, I'm sure. Because he's 12. Right yeah, now. he's yeah. 12. So mm -hmm. it, he's taking it on in an age appropriate time. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that art therapy is ultimately what helped you make those, make that big 
leap into healing. What was it about art therapy that, that really broke through for you? Yeah, I'll never forget that day. Um, there was a woman um, who was older than me, and I had heard about some of the things that happened to her on my first visit to the hospital in group therapy. And some of them were similar to things that I'd experienced. And she was in the corner of the room, and she had her arms around her, and she was rocking back and forth. And it was like nobody was there. And uh, this was you know, the first day back after having an overdose and being sent back. And um, I watched her and I thought, if I don't get this out of me, I'm going to end up like her or dead. And statistics show that somebody that's trafficked has a seven-year lifespan. And I wasn't even in the life of trafficking anymore. I was six years out and I was still facing that possibility. And um, the next therapy was art therapy. And the art therapist asked everybody in the room to draw what we're afraid of. And she said, keep it to yourself, keep it in your binder, or you can get up and share. And I stood up and held my paper of stick figure men. And I said, when I was 18, I was married to somebody, and he had men come to the apartment and rape me, and they gave him money for it. And I don't know what that means, but I'm afraid. And it was like, whew, the truth will set you free in a psychiatric hospital with barbed wire around it where I couldn't leave on my own free will my first real taste of freedom. I was like, there it is, now help me do what you gotta do. And then that whole team kind of rushed in and I was getting so much help in all different kinds of therapies um, and learning and getting the tools, understanding that what I survived was human trafficking and that what I had was complex PTSD. Now I could heal. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Just from, from stick figures on a paper? Stick figures on a paper. That was it. I'm not quite the artist. You're not. A, okay. So we thought you were like, you know, an artist. Yeah. yeah. It was a beautiful like, oh, painting. Though. Yeah. So you mentioned that you, you spoke to the, the UN. Mm -hmm. What was that like? So that kind of came around really cool. I was in New York um, training at Northwell Hospital. And um, there was a delegate in the audience. And um, I took an Uber after a day of training back to my hotel. And I guess in New York, they can only drive to certain parts. They can't drive all over the state. And so he goes, oh, I can't take you. And he took me back to the hospital. And she was on the sidewalk. And she goes, oh, let's take an Uber together. And we were talking. And she said, uh, you know, Jenna, have you ever spoken at the UN? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's a Tuesday for me, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. and, uh, <laughs> all the time. And uh, she goes, I have this date. Would you like to come speak? And she said the date. And I already had known some of my schedule. And I was supposed to be in Sacramento to do some symposium thing. And I thought it through. I was like, hey, I will go to New York. I'll speak and then I'll take the red eye and then come back and then get ready. Yes. And I was like, yes, I can do it. And uh, uh, and then COVID happened and it got delayed. Um, and then they still in 2021 delayed it again. And uh, I did it from home in my cowboy boots. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You told me about that. Yeah, I went That's out awesome. to feed the horse and, and I thought, I, you know, I went and changed and got ready. And then I left my my boots and my wranglers on just so i could be the first redneck to speak at the un and, uh, <laughs> i get to say that forever and uh you know um your dad was happy about that yeah <laughs> representing my country family that's great <laughs> but speaking there i mean good uh they received it well yeah uh, my my presentation was to global nurses mm. um you know and that's really i really appreciate speaking to any medical community um because you know when i went to that urgent care that was a missed opportunity to mm -hmm. help um 
just like law enforcement when I remember being arrested one time and I was shamed by the police officer um, in front of my trafficker and uh, I I was in my jail cell crying and they sent a female officer in to talk to me and that would have been a really good opportunity to get help and mm -hmm. um, maybe you know share what was going on and just with what that officer said I didn't think I had any choices and when I left that urgent care I thought uh, well I guess I won't anybody you know and then you're not diagnosed and you're living trying to navigate life after all this trauma and it's hard mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and now when you go to the er because i have some experience with that this month <laughs> you know uh i i was in so much pain and kind of jokingly they were like we have some questions to ask you i said i feel safe at home can we move on yeah. to the next one please <laughs> so, <laughs> but they ask you that now do right. you feel safe at home yeah you know and i guess that's a start it's a start. Yeah. It's a start. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not a looking into somebody's eyes and you're usually typing on their computer. Do you feel safe at home? And most girls who don't are going to probably just say, yeah, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. Especially if your traffickers right there. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I think I can speak for everybody here that um, it's hard not to get emotional when you share these this information and the details of everything that you went through. But just to see you here and your strength and your bravery to help others to share your message, I Truly, thank you very much for all of that. Um, is there anything else you would like to share about your experience or the issue of human tra trafficking? Um, just an example, you know, I wouldn't be able to be here and talk about it um, or do any of the work I do without taking the healing journey that I took. So I've been in therapy every, religiously every week for three years um, and then off and on before that. And uh, every summer I go on a backpacking trip with other survivors and therapists out in the wilderness, no phone, no distraction, just completely present, healing, climbing mountains. And so the physical and the mental are there and it's hard, but it's a reset every summer for me. Um, I went to an ashram and learned to meditate from monks, which I still use in my daily. That's neat. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. man. And, and the, the, the reflecting that it has you do, where sometimes, you know, when you've survived horrible traumas, you can go into victim mode and, oh, and this, and this, my back hurts every day. I have to go to the chiropractor and getting out of that mindset of where I, when I reflect, I, I wish the things that happened to me didn't happen, but there's gratitude in the sense of, oh, I still get to live the whatever life I want to live. Mm -hmm. And I get to raise my son and I get to do work and have healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. um, I love the meditating part of that. Um, and um, and keeping all of the hard stuff, acknowledging it and, and continuing to work on that trauma, um, but also being positive and going, wow, I get to live a cool life now. He didn't take anything else from me. You know, what's kind of interesting is not only did he not take anything else away from you, look what he gave you. Mm -hmm. And he didn't give that to you, but your experience and your situation, you were able to turn it into this, a lifestyle, a career, a path. You're saving thousands of people. You don't even know the number. You'll never know the number. You know, my best friend Angela does all the fentanyl awareness stuff. And I tell her all the time, just like I'll tell you, you will never know how many people are alive because of you. You know, they're, they're, you just can't, you can never put your thumb on it, mm. you know? And so you're living a cool life, but you're also helping other people live a cool life. Yeah, that's the, there, there's no other reason to be public with it. It's not fun to be known as a girl that survived trafficking. The only reason behind doing that is to offer hope. And it's not just to trafficking victims, but to 
any kind of trauma. We all go through hard things. Mm-hmm. Um, being a single mom, going through the divorce and being a single mom and living in the cockroach apartment and working three jobs, that sucked. That was really hard, but got through it and then moved up here in my horse trailer mm-hmm. and started this from nothing. Uh, it just goes to show if you, you know, do the work and, and, um, and follow your calling and, and have integrity and, and care. My experience gave me more compassion for people that I might not have had if I didn't survive it. Right. So you mentioned your horse trailer. Um, I'm looking at your website, jennamckay.com, and there's a tab for horse therapy. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you um, administer? Yeah, so we just provide the funds to um, survivors of trafficking to go to a certified horse therapist. What is a horse therapy session like? Um it's uh it's uh really you know they the horse here i can explain the best some people go well what does a horse have to do with the sex trafficking survivor like how does that <laughs> and i remember asking the horse therapist uh you know she actually was um she really worked mostly with autistic kids and um, giving regular horseback riding lessons and i came to her one day and i was like how about sex trafficking survivors and she was oh, i don't know i don't know how to work with like, they're just people too with just a different kind of trauma and the thing is, the horse is a prey animal, and when it experiences a threat, it wants to get as far away from that threat as possible, where we want to do the same thing. Whatever's trying to harm us, let's get away from it. Um, but the difference is, once that threat's gone, the horse goes back to a calm, relaxed state as if nothing ever happened, where we as humans stay in PTSD, anxiety, depression, fear, anger. Fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the horse teaches them to be calm and grounded and you're also coming from a world of fear where now you have to trust a thousand pound animal and a lot of these girls have never had horse experiences where wow it's a little scary to be up there and it's really you know not just the riding and you know putting your hands out and trusting the horse the grooming um being connected to the horse they're just an amazing animal to use um I've, I, when I went through the divorce in Southern California, I leased a horse on base, and that horse helped me survive for three years. I swear, I went out there every day I could to go ride, um, just because it was so healing to be on him. And uh, I had a horse here, and um, you know, I'm from a horse family. My grandma taught me how to ride, and um, yeah, she said her grandma's 92 and still rides a horse. Oh, that's incredible. That's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, she's cool. Wow. Yeah, she's cool. <laughs> It's it's interesting to hear that I I'm terrified of horses. Mm-hmm. I think they're cool, but mm-hmm. you know they scare the crap out of me. Yeah, you know. But I've been watching Yellowstone, so I, think yeah. I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the key is to get on a broke one. You yeah. don't want to be like the one guy where they taped his hands to the yeah. saddle. No, oh no mustangs for me. Yep. Let, let me get the oldest, <laughs> like slowest horse on yeah. thing, and I can do it. So. Oh man! Well, wait till your wrists. Uh... Yeah. Oh, I'm not doing anything. I'm doing nothing for a while. Nope, can't chase that bad guy. Nope, I'm not going there. Nope. Well, is there anything that we uh, we haven't? No, Jenna. Thank you. Can you um, tell everybody your website or what you know what you have out there that they can look up? Yeah, uh, jennamckay.com. McKay has an e at the end. It's my ex-husband's. So it's that pain in the ass spelling. <laughs> if people, if you just type it without the e, it's a realtor in New York. Um, and uh, Instagram is Jenna McKay and um, Facebook Jenna McKay Foundation. And can anybody contact you to maybe? get you to speak at any of their organizations, schools, that kind of thing? Yeah, if you contact me through the website, there's a contact button. Um, awesome. Yeah. Yep. And I'll, uh, we'll link her, obviously, at, on the podcast. And mm-hmm. uh, we I put a video on TikTok, which did pretty well for you. So um, 
we'll we'll put some more follow-up stuff on on rad radio youtube and mm-hmm. my youtube and instagram and stuff so i'm grateful for you thank you thank you you're a warrior you know you say survivor but i'm like damn she's a warrior <laughs> you know you. what i mean kind of kind of just takes resiliency to a whole different level for everybody else who's listening and you don't have to be a victim of human trafficking i mean mm-hmm. what we've been through all the trauma yeah, yeah. i mean it, it trauma has many different faces unfortunately and yeah. um it sounds like you're doing all the right things to get to the right place and especially for your your son thank you very much for sharing your story yes thank you, very thank touching. you guys for having me yeah. we'll be back in a couple weeks another i think we're gonna just me and you and yeah. dino and kyle, and kyle we're yeah. just gonna it's you and talk, the boys talk smack yeah oh. me and the boys. three three and a half men <laughs> i count as half sorta right oh uh, yeah we're we'll gonna give you the half i credit. mean my suits are better that's oh. true yeah she is best dressed yeah but i don't have a sequined shirt like kyle uh, yeah, yeah. kyle can you wear that you want me to wear the bedazzled shirt? You have to wear the All bedazzled right. shirt. All right, I will wear the bedazzled shirt. You have to shirt. tune in just to see Kyle's shirt in two weeks. Fair uh, enough. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you for connecting with us. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Perfect. <laughs>